everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. Glad you came. If you're new here, my name is Amos. I'm one of the teaching pastors. Um, We are going to continue with our Revelation series this morning. And you say, isn't Revelation that book with the apocalypse and Armageddon and the dragon and all those trumpets? And I would say, yeah, it is. And you would say, why are we doing that at Christmas time? And I would say, because at Christmas we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We believe that he came into the world, God in the flesh, once in the past, and he is coming again in the future. And so his coming really only has meaning because of his death death and resurrection, yes, but because of his return when he comes and makes all things good and right and holy again. And so if you have your Bibles that you brought, you can grab them. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I have page numbers that will be on the screen. I have them in the back corners there. There's those NLT white covered things. And uh, as I recommend to you guys, when we get into like really difficult or challenging texts, I think having a study Bible is a good idea. And this is my personal favorite. It's the ESV study Bible. The translation is a little closer to the original Greek but the notes are amazing. So let me ask you again, as I did a few weeks ago, who wishes that they had this Bible at home in their library? I'm going to say, if you want it, come and get it. And uh, for, the, for the person who just gave birth, there's some in the back corner. There's one in the back corner for you. Congratulations, Houstons. Hi, Hunt. Who wants it? Come and get it. Give it to Anne. Anne wants it. Hey, Steve, can you give this to Anne? Are you coming for the Bible, Anne? Or are you just taking off your coat? (laughs) It looked like you were about ready to, you know, hit the uh, the racetrack. I maybe misread that. Anyway, who was going for it? Deb Baker? Uh, There's another. Gary, could you bring that to Deb? I don't see where Deb is, but she's there. There she is. Right in front of you, Gary. Open up your NLT Bibles to Genesis 2. And you say, weren't we reading from Revelation? And I say, yeah, we will get there. And the, uh, the opening chapters of Genesis help us understand what the whole book is about in its beginning. The whole, what the whole world is about, what God's design for the world is about. And we'll talk about that as we go. So let's, uh, let's open with prayer to just center ourselves again. Jesus, we ask that you would come quickly. Return as king. And teach us now your word. Uh, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would take the words of scripture and plant them in our hearts, give us vision for how to live them and bind us together in like perfect unity as a community, 
as we gather to learn and worship and pray. Amen. So the Bible is a story. It's a true story. It's God's story. It's also the story of all of human history that begins in a garden that I'll call Act One. But it doesn't take long before Act Two begins, and that's what we'll be reading here in Genesis chapter two and three. So this is the beginning of the story, Act One and Two, the creation and the fall into sin, into the curse of struggle and pain that we find ourselves living in, at least in part today. So Revelation, or Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one thing to remember here is that the Hebrew idea of knowing is not the same as the Greek idea of knowing. Most of us in the Western world today think of it in Greek terms as if knowledge is only something that is in our head. But for a Hebrew thinker, knowledge is something that is experienced. So this isn't just being able to say, oh, that's good and that's evil. That's the tree where you come to know (laughs) experientially, not just good, which is all they had known up to this point in the garden, but also evil. Verse 10, and a river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden. Now, let's jump down to verse 18. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so God makes for him a woman, and the two, Adam and Eve, become one flesh, which is the Bible's metaphor both for sex and marriage. The two, in biblical terms, are one and the same. Verse 25, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no, what? Shame. Many of you know this story. Chapter three, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Which he does say in verse uh, 16, by the way. And I think these crafty words of Satan, it's the same thing he's doing today. He's asking us, did God really say that? When we try to justify our own actions, when we try to define good and evil for ourselves, he tells us the same lie. Did God really say that? Is that really what the Bible says? Does that really apply to us today? Maybe we can find a loophole and make the Bible a little less confrontational so that I can do a little more of what I want, so that I can decide what is good and what is evil. The serpent said, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? 
Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Verse 3, it's only the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the servant replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. It's another one of Satan's tricks. The best lies are mostly true. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, which is really incredible to imagine God walking in the garden. You can expect that he was walking in the garden because his desire was to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, to be near to them. But in the middle of verse 8 there, they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was the woman who you gave to me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? It was the serpent that deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. You notice here how a lie leads to disobedience, leads to shame, leads to fear, leads to hiding. And Adam and Eve here hide in two different ways. They hide physically, thinking they can go into the bushes and God won't find them, which was very silly for them. The God who created all things, who knows all things. If I just go over into those bushes, then he won't see me in my nakedness. But they also hide by blaming. And you find we do the same things today. We believe a lie. We disobey. We feel shame, which leads to fear. And so we blame or hide. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed. More than all animals, domestic and wild, You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's stating the conflict that we all have between uh, like ourselves (laughs) and the forces of evil, which has not been the defining thing in the history of the world, but it has been the context (laughs) for each of our lives. But then here comes the promise. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent will bite the heel of mankind, but I will send one that will crush the serpent's head. And then he turns and speaks to the woman and to the man. And the two main words that I just want you to like kind of circle if you see them is pain and struggle. And that is the project of Act 3. 
Act one is the good garden. Act two is the fall of humankind. Act three is the story of redemption where Jesus enters the scene as the most important human character at Christmas. And he is the one who crushes the serpent's head. And so the redemption of the world is in process, is in progress, but right now we live in tension. In Act 4, which in seminary is what we called the consummation or the completion or the fulfillment of the redemption, which is what Revelation 21 and 22 point toward. So if the Bible is a story in four acts, you have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, which is what helps us understand what the, wor- what the world is going on in the world. It helps us see where we find meaning and why things go wrong and why at times our families are unraveling, our lives are unraveling, addiction takes hold, why death is in the picture, the great enemy. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God as the author, the creator, and the savior and redeemer. This is what informs our worldview or how we view the world as we live in it and how we live in the world. So, Jesus is the redeemer, but let's jump to the consummation in Revelation 21, which we've been kind of working on for the last How long? Two months since we started our Isaiah 60 series. And hopefully, as I read this, with uh, if you've been coming, some of the things you know will kind of like light up in your brain. So we'll start in Revelation 21. This is a big flip. That's like, that's the whole Bible. You You just turned the page that's about two inches thick. Um, And we'll start with verse nine of Revelation 21. This is our hope. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues, remember him, came and said to me, come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I will show you the bride of the lamb, the church, as it comes down from heaven to earth in the form of a great city. Jump to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day, because there is no night there and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Remember that imagery from Isaiah 60? There is no temple because the Lord and the Lamb are its temple. And the kings bring in all their culture, all the culture of the world, the fullness of the world that Jesus owns, it's his. So chapter 22, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a what? 
tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. And so we have this temple, garden, city that is the picture of what eternity with God looks like. And the imagery from the garden we just read, the tree of life, the river of life, which is clear as crystal. It is meant for perfect cleansing. But also water, of course, is a symbol of life. And we look back to see where life comes from, and it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And I'm reading Dune right now. Did you guys watch the movie, read the book? Anybody? If you read Dune, one of the big takeaways is like, wow, water is really precious. Because Dune is sort of like Tatooine from Star Wars. Actually, it's the other way around. Tatooine is kind of like Dune. uh, Because anyway, George Lucas stole all Dune's ideas. That's what happened. Where there is no water, there is no life. And here we have water flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. We know where true life comes from. The tree of life, whose leaves are used for medicine to heal the nations. And I think I often only thought of this in terms of like healing between nations, But what about healing in nations? (laughs) What about healing a divided nation? What about healing the relationships that have been torn because of the political fights that means you're not talking to friends or family anymore? What about, like, I'll just say the injustice that people have suffered. What would it look like to heal? This is the hope. This is what we need. We need the tree of life. We need the river of life. We look forward to this garden temple city. And it says in verse 3, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. What curse? The curse from Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Close, 2 and 3. Have you guys seen the end of Beauty and the Beast? You remember what happens at the beginning? This castle is put under a curse. And everything from the peak of the castle to the base to the walls falls under a curse. So that everything that was like bright and beautiful becomes thorny and twisted. And even the prince who was handsome takes on the form of a beast. And through a redemptive kiss... Which, by the way, there's this passage in the Old Testament that talks about heaven and earth kissing. Through this redemptive kiss, the curse is reversed. And not only do all the candlesticks and clocks that sing songs take on human form, but the castle itself takes on its original intent. The thorns fall away and the gargoyles turn to angels. And that's, that's sort of the imagery here in, in Revelation 22, verse 3. Verse 4, 
and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. There's another interesting thing because this in a way communicates like the ownership and the security of the people of the city to have uh, God's name written on their forehead. But you know what else? Who else wears the name of God on their forehead? Do you know? I'll give you a clue. It goes back to our Leviticus series. It's the high priest. The high priest on his head, on his turban, has a gold plate that says, holy to the Lord. And do you know where the high priest can go that nobody else in the nation of Israel can go? Into the holy of holies. That's the vision of Revelation 21 and 22, that we, the people of God, enter into the holy of holies, the presence of God, the source of all life, who alone can heal all the hurts of the world. Verse 5, And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, Everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. And uh, verse 7 in your Bible, is it read? That's because Jesus is talking. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book, which is specifically talking about the book of Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw all those things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am the servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book. Worship who? Worship only God. It's interesting. This isn't the first time in the book of Revelation this happens, where John tries to fall down and worship an angel, which is beautiful and good, but not God. So even John, who is probably one of Jesus' disciples, is tempted to worship good things instead of God or alongside God. And the angel says, no, that is not your design. Your design is to worship God alone. Our temptation is to worship good and beautiful things. But that is not what we were designed for. We were designed to worship God alone. Verse 10, then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book for the time is near, which sounds a little strange, like why would you hide it? Well, in Daniel, the book of prophecy, which also points to the end of history. Daniel's told to seal up the book and don't tell anyone for a while. So now it's time to let this plan be known. Verse 11, let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy, which is kind of strange to hear. But uh, I do think about how much effort in my life I've put into trying to get other people to change <laughs> and how little effect that has had and uh, how much better my time is spent working on my own heart and my own actions. And, uh, and maybe some people see that and change themselves. But to let the words of God and the Holy Spirit do the work instead of trying to take over someone else's life, maybe that's the point. Um, in verse 12, red text again. Look, 
I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I kind of want to say more about that, but I got to keep going. Some other time. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Do you remember what they wash their robes in? I'll give you a clue. It's red and shouldn't turn your robes white if it was not symbolic. (laughs) The blood of the lamb. In other words, these robes don't turn white because of your effort, because of your earning. They turn white because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I think I'm going to say some things here pretty fast. Like we are saved by grace through faith. You can think of grace coming through the channel of faith, and that is what washes our robes. But Jesus talks an awful lot about repentance, and repentance is turning. So I think about if grace is coming to us through the channel of faith, to repent means we orient our lives in a direction so that we can receive, <laughs> like that, so that we're pointed in the right direction. That has like a lot to do with how we live. Repenting has a lot to do with how we live, but also to do with what we desire and the, the way that we shape our desires. Yes, I think it's possible. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs. Sorry, dog people, dog lovers, no dogs here. It's a cat-only city. No, that's not what it's talking about. Um, What it is talking about is throughout Scripture, the dog image, which don't think of them like cute golden retrievers. Think of them like stray dogs that are kind of annoying in the streets. And everybody wishes they would stay outside the city, but instead they're like stealing, you know, my my lamb loaf off of the kitchen table if I accidentally leave the door open. You know what I mean? So like dogs, dogs are not a positive image here. And dogs are pretty consistently in scripture referring to people who disregard the teachings of the Bible, who care not for the covenant that God um, makes with his people. And so one of the places this comes up is uh, perhaps playfully, Jesus is having an interaction with the Samaritan woman. You remember this? And the, the, the thing that Jews called Samaritans were dogs because the Samaritans ignored the command from Torah to only worship at the temple. The Samaritans had set up their own temple. Now, Jesus talks about how there will be a day coming where everybody can worship in spirit and truth, right? Because he says... Soon, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed, but the Holy Spirit will begin to dwell in all people. So outside are the dogs, the people who disregard the teaching of Scripture, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. And this this idea of sorcery, sexual immorality, murderers, idol worshipers, and liars is, again, something that gets repeated uh, throughout the book of Revelation, but also in other places. I've been, I've been shocked at how often 
these things come up whenever there's a scripture passage about being a citizen of the kingdom, for instance, or uh, being, being someone who lives out the kingdom in their life. Back to read in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. Again, I am the one who in the darkest of times will appear and you will know that there is hope for the day. The spirit and the bride, the spirit and the church say, come. Let anyone who hears say, say, come. In other words, anyone who responds to this invitation becomes inviters to this wedding feast. Let anyone who desires drink, oh, come let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life. In verse 18, I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any one of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Remember last week when we talked about how the apocalypse, the day of judgment, the scroll is bittersweet? It's because there's judgment as well as vindication. There's resurrection as well as death. And here we find out that even people who had gathered to hear these words at church on a Sunday among their friends and families with them uh, to celebrate communion and to sing songs, some of the people who had gathered were cutting out things that they didn't like to hear from the prophetic witness. And some people were adding in things. Again, what? why would we? Well, we know why we do that. Because we want to live the way we want to live. We don't want to submit our life to the kingship of Jesus. We want the benefits without the cost. So if you are thirsty for the river of life, that also says something about your willingness to submit to the king of the universe and what he says. Verse 20. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That always makes me emotional. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And waiting is something that none of us are good at. What do you mean soon? I was buying a Walmart gift card at, well, you know, Walmart the other day. And, you know, it takes like two seconds for the gift card to load. And I, the, the person behind the register is like, in that two seconds, she's like, <laughs> like, are you singing in your head? She's like, yes. <laughs> what are you singing? I want to hear it. <laughs> and she says, well, it's a song from TikTok. I was like, oh, boy. She's like, da, 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 da. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> anyway, like we, we can't wait for two seconds. 
And some of us are waiting desperately because we have gotten bad news from the doctor and people we love have been put on hospice. And we feel in our hearts the, the pain of people who are living in war-torn countries and brutal dictatorships. And, and we, we experience the breakdown of our own bodies, the sore knees and the fuzzy head and the, the loss of those that we love. And we're waiting and we say, Jesus, please come soon. So the waiting, I think, is designed to get us praying these words. Jesus, please come soon. But we can understand a little better because of the words from Second Peter chapter 3. You can turn there with me if you want. This is another one of those passages that I think is just always worth knowing. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And so we wait and we say, how long to sing this song? Give us a new song. And we hear that Jesus is actually being patient. Or in the words of Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia, I call all times soon. And then there are the words from St. Augustine, who is one of the deep thinkers and feelers from the Christian tradition. And he talks about waiting, and he talks about the design of the human soul. He says, the entire life of a good Christian is an exercise in holy desire. You do not see what you long for, but the very act of desiring prepares you so that when God comes, you may see and be utterly satisfied. And here's what he's talking about. By stretching a wineskin, you increase the capacity of the sack. And this is how God deals with us. Simply by making us wait, God increases our desire, which in turn enlarges the capacity of our soul, making it able to receive what is to be given to us. In waiting, which we are not good at, even as I stood in the grocery line, I have my phone out, filling that waiting with whatever, <laughs> news, podcasts. In waiting, in learning to wait expectantly, we actually increase our capacity to receive the goodness and reward and love of God. And so let's stand. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and the celebration of your birth, now 2,000 plus years ago, 
we ask that you would expand our soul in our ability to receive the goodness and love that you have designed us for. We root our hope in your death and resurrection and return. And so even now as we suffer, even now as we experience pain, even now as we experience relational breakdown, we have hope. And so fill us with hope. And as we worship, help us to experience a little taste of heaven on earth. Help us to know you, to experience what it's like to hear your voice, to walk with you in the garden, even for a few minutes. As we worship, strengthen our hearts. We bless your name, God. We sing our love song to you. We lift up our praises. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.